to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. These are chapters which form a whole. Their theme is really the theme that you find running right through the whole of this section of Isaiah from chapter 7 right through in fact to chapter 39. And there is one discernible theme, a kind of uh, thread that runs right through all of these chapters and it is this. It is the dual thread of this truth. The wisdom of trusting in Jehovah and the folly of trusting in anyone or anything else. Now that's a simple truth, but it touches the whole of life and affects every area of our personal lives. It affects our national life and it affects every area that these two levels of life can touch both for nations on the large scale and for individuals at the personal level the crucial question at every stage of our life and in every period of history is in whom have we placed our confidence where have we put our trust. Now that does not mean we are being asked by Isaiah where do we profess to have our trust? Where is the official place that our confidence as God's people is placed? But deep down in the depths of our lives controlling the way we think and the priorities we have and the whole pattern of our life in whom are we really trusting? Is it really true of us that our confidence and our trust is in the Lord? Or are we secretly putting our trust in man or in the flesh, in human planning and wisdom, in human resources and wealth? Or is our trust and confidence really in the Lord so that the whole of life is affected by that? Now it's a crucial question. Because if you are trusting in God, which is Isaiah's great message, he sees, for example, Judah, his own land, and the king of Judah going to the Assyrians for help and to the Egyptians for help. They turn in all sorts of different directions. They plot and plan and enter into alliances to secure their safety. And he says, where is your confidence? Where is your trust? Put not your trust in princes, but trust in the Lord. Now if we are trusting in the Lord, we will follow his wisdom, not the wisdom of men. We will have our confidence firmly placed in his power 
and not in human resources. We will recognize that he alone sovereignly rules the world and raises up and casts down men and nations and has the ultimate word about our own lives and destiny. And therefore we will resolutely refuse to put our confidence anywhere else than in the Lord. Now the underlying truth of this whole section of Isaiah is that God is not just the Lord of his people. He is not just Jehovah the God of Israel and Judah. He is the Lord of the nations. That is, he is the God of the whole earth which is a frequent emphasis throughout this whole section. And the reason is very important, and it's simply this, that the distinctive feature, the revolutionary concept of God, which Isaiah and the whole of the Jewish scriptures brought, was that contrary to the thinking of the nations round about them, God was not just the God of a nation or a locality. Now, all the other nations round about, these na nations, for example, that are mentioned in this section of Isaiah, there are about a dozen of them to whom Isaiah brings a prophecy. They all had their own God. For example, Moab had their own God. Chemosh was the God of Moab. But he ruled within the territory of Moab. And within the territory of Moab, you had the protection of the God of that nation. Immediately you stepped outside of the boundaries of the nation, you were no longer under the protection of the God of that nation. You moved into another territory, as it were. And you will remember when uh, Jonah, for instance, is in the ship, and there is a multinational community in the ship, the word goes out, let every man call on his God. Because they would come from different places, and they would have a God on whom they would call. But the great problem they faced was that the God they worshipped was a God who was confined to the nation over which he ruled. But Jehovah is unique in that he is the Lord who both created and controlled the whole earth. And all the world powers are answerable to him and under his ultimate sovereign control. Now that's why he is so often differentiated from the idols by being called the God of the whole earth. He is the God of the nations. And it is why he is also differentiated by being called the living and the true God. That is, he is living as distinct from being a dead idol and he is true as distinct from being a false object of worship. 
and he is the Lord of the whole earth who is living and sovereign. Now in this section of Isaiah, as I say, there are something like a dozen nations referred to, and they're all located in this area to which the map refers. It's impossible, incidentally, to buy or find a large map of the Bible lands these days. Anybody who knows where there is one, I would be glad to hear from them. A really large one that we could use, but uh, short of having one, um, this diagram on which my kind friend and colleague wrote C plus try harder next time. Uh, this will show you um, in at least diagrammatic form where these different places are. All of these different countries and peoples are in an area which is called the Fertile Crescent. And it's rather important for us to see this if we're going to be able to understand this part of Isaiah. If you think of a crescent which can be traced from Egypt in the southwest to Nineveh, Assyria, in the north, and then down to the Persian Gulf in the southeast, you will see that there is a kind of half-moon shape there. Now that's an area that is called the Fertile Crescent, because, of course, very simple to understand why it's called by that name, it is surrounded by sand and mountains. To the north of the area, there is the mountainous region. To the south and east of it, and west of it, rather, there is the sand of Arabia. And throughout that whole section, because of the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, which run into the Persian Gulf, and because of the river Nile on the west side, there is this crescent which is fertile as distinct from barren and desert. And Egypt, of course, has its life from the Nile. That, of course, is why when God is judging Egypt, he turns the Nile into blood because the Nile, the river, is the very life of Egypt. There was no judgment that could be more severe, therefore, than to take away the source of Egypt's life, which was its river. And then in the middle of this area, if you follow the crescent from Egypt up to Assyria, down to the Persian Gulf, there is the little country of Judah and to its north Israel. And there, there is another river connecting the Sea of Galilee in the north, that little sea, with the Dead Sea in the south, and that's the river Jordan. And through that whole area, therefore, there is a fertile area, and countries tended to congregate. Nations formed themselves in that area largely because of its fertility and because of its proximity to the sea, to the Mediterranean Sea on the one hand, to the Persian Gulf uh, in the other. 
Now, almost everything that happens in the Old Testament happens in this area. These are almost entirely the boundaries of the whole of Old Testament history. And if you look at this area, you will see that uh, it is obvious that that should be so. But in this area, um, there is a great deal of the history that Isaiah is concerned with uh, specifically. Now, the great powers are at the extreme ends of this crescent. In the extreme west and south there is Egypt. In the extreme east, at the Persian Gulf end, there is Babylon. And Egypt and Babylon are the great strong powers in that whole area. And you can see how Israel and Judah are tiny states caught in the middle of these great powerful nations together with Assyria in the north. Now the great temptation for them, therefore, is to be aware of their smallness and weakness by comparison and to engage then in the kind of worldly thinking that we engage in also. Because by comparison with the great powers of Babylon and Egypt, they were tiny. What should such tiny nations do, therefore? They should make alliances with the strong and mighty. But God is saying to them through Isaiah, a nation whose God is the Lord is the nation with which other nations will have to come to terms by and by. Because it is not material might or glory like Babylon's. It is not the wealth of a country like Phoenicia, of which Tyre was the great city. It is the sovereign power of the living and true God which will ultimately determine the destiny of all men and nations. Now, the great question, you see, is to take that out of ancient history and the prophecy of Isaiah and bring it to ourselves. Is it not true that we tend to think in these same worldly terms? We have never really caught what it is that the Bible is teaching us about when it says what we were singing this evening, the Lord is King. Who then shall dare resist his will, distrust his care? If God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, no matter how few and weak we may seem, then the issues of the day and the issues of history are not being decided in Washington or London or Peking or Moscow. They are being decided at the throne of God in heaven. Now the question is, do I really, really, really believe that? Because that makes the world of difference to my whole vision of the world and of my own life and of what God is doing. If I believe that at the center of history, you see, is not human power or human activity or human wealth or, 
authority. But the sovereign authority of God, whose great business is the building of his church. What is history waiting for? History is not waiting for some conference of men or nations or some foolish action of some individual pressing the wrong button. History is waiting for the completion of the church of Jesus Christ in the world. And that's what the world is for. The world is the stage for that. And just as at the end of a play all the trappings are taken down and all the sets are removed, the world will be finished with, as it were, when the church of Jesus Christ is complete. And this is the great business that lies at the center of history. We need to grasp a vision of that. Because it's one of the things Isaiah is speaking about through these chapters. Now, the beginning and the end of this section deal with two great representatives of human power and wealth, as I was saying, Babylon and Tyre. Babylon, in chapter 13 and 14, you will notice the prophecy against Babylon. If you've got an NIV, it's entitled, A Prophecy Against Babylon, stretches through two chapters. And then the next one is a prophecy against Moab, this little nation to the east of the Dead Sea. But Babylon is not only an historical nation and empire and city to which, as you will know, the people of God were ultimately exiled and uh, Isaiah is prophesying of their exile and return and then God came down in judgment upon Babylon, demonstrating that he was the righteous judge of all the earth. Although he used Babylon for the disciplining of his people, he ultimately brought judgment upon them, of which Isaiah is here speaking. But Babylon is not only an historical nation and empire and city, she is also a representative city representing the power of godless men and women, of godless society, representing the glory, because the Babylonian Empire was a glorious thing, but it is representing the glory of a godless world, and above all, the offense to God of human pride. Now that's something we need to remember about Babylon. Of course you will remember if you were with us when we studied Revelation, which we did a long time ago now, but uh, if you were with us at that time you may remember that Babylon occurs in Revelation chapter 14. And um, if you notice these uh, words that we read about Babylon um, in chapter 13 verse 19 for example Babylon the jewel of kingdoms the glory of the Babylonians pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah and then when you read the second prophecy about Babylon 
in chapter 21 of Isaiah and verse 9, the destruction and fall of Babylon is described in these words. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses, and he gives back the answer. What has happened to Babylon? Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. Now listen to Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now Babylon is a symbol, therefore, of human pride that is set against God. And uh, not only is it a symbol of human pride, but in a special sense, it may well be that Isaiah 14 sees Babylon as personified in Satan himself. Do you know that famous passage in Isaiah 14 beginning at verse 12? How have you fallen from heaven? The authorized version says, Lucifer, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. And while it refers in the first instance to the king of Babylon, many godly scholars have seen there a picture of the fall of Satan from his glory as an angel of God created by God who rebelled against God because pride took hold of him. Now this whole issue of pride is something which lies at the heart of the message of this part of Isaiah. It's important for us to grasp this a little. Let me just give you several things that Isaiah is here teaching us. The first is that God hates pride. Look at chapter 13 verse 11. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God. Chapter 14, verse 11, all your pomp has been brought down to the grave. And one of the great emphases of this section of Isaiah is that the very thing that draws out God's judgment is the pride of men whose confidence is in man. 
because that's the essence of what is happening, you see. When we put our confidence in ourselves, in our own wisdom, like Ahaz, the king of Judah, in our own plotting and planning and alliances and so on, what is happening is that it is man we are trusting. It is our own wisdom that we have confidence in, and the essence of it is pride. Now, it's for this reason that the very essence of sin in the Bible, the very thing that God hates most, is pride, not murder, or adultery, or any of the gross sins that we immediately think of when we say, what is it that God hates most of all? What God hates is a proud spirit. And the New Testament tells us God actually resists the proud. What is it that keeps somebody at a distance from God? What is it that makes God say to us, stay your distance from me. You can't come near. You're not the kind of person that I'm going to have close dealings with. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, says Peter. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons that we need to be concerned more about a proud spirit than about almost anything else in our Christian experience. Because God resists it and hates it. And here in his dealings with Babylon and with Tyre and with these other nations, you can see if you read through these chapters, and I'd suggest to you that this week you read right through chapters 13 to 23, if possible at a sitting, you will see that God is taking the proud and casting them down. His response to them is to take the lofty and cast them down to the dust. And Babylon, in all its glory at the end, is left. Do you notice this amazing transformation? Verse 19 of chapter 13. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. Desert creatures will lie there. The jackals will fill their houses. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds. And I'm told that that is exactly what you find if you go to Babylon, modern Babylon today. God hates pride. The second great thing that Isaiah is telling us is that God is sovereign in three ways. He is sovereign in power. You notice chapter 19, verse 12. In this prophecy about Egypt, with all its wise men and all its great might and strength, God says to them, Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. God is sovereign in power. Notice, secondly, God is sovereign in judgment. Verse 13. 
chapter 19 again, verses 3 and 4. The Egyptians will lose heart, and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Now, through the whole of this section, that's the second great theme of God's sovereignty. He is sovereign in power, that is, it is he who rules over the affairs of men and nations but he is sovereign also in judgment. You notice the third area in which he is sovereign. In chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, he is sovereign in grace. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join with them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place, and the house of Israel will possess the nations as men servants and maid servants in the Lord's hand. So what is God doing? He is aiming to restore his people to himself. He is sovereign in grace as well as in power and judgment. And what's the last thing? God hates pride. God is sovereign in power, in judgment, and in grace. And the last thing is this, that his people must therefore trust him. Look at the last verse of chapter 14. Verse 32 of chapter 14. What answer shall be given to the envoys of that nation? That is, the Philistines who come seeking to ally with Israel. What answer shall be given to the envoys of that nation? The answer will be, the Lord has established Zion, and in her his afflicted people will find refuge. That's where God's people have to find their confidence. And they do so because of what he says earlier in chapter 14 and verse 24 and verse 27. Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand verse 27, for the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Now, if that is the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, how can we possibly have our confidence anywhere else than in him. Right? Well, let me tell you a corollary of that truth before we stop. And the corollary of it is very simple. It is, if our confidence is in the Lord, 
our main activity as God's people will not be in our dealings with anybody else but in our dealings with him. Now that follows a simple logic, doesn't it? And we are, generally speaking, very logical people. Except this is where our logic breaks down in our Christian priorities. If the Lord is the one we are to have confidence in, our main and most vital area of dealing will be not with people, but with God. And with God on behalf of people. So when there are problems that arise, for example, I was saying to a group of ministers in uh, Toronto a few weeks ago, when there are problems that arise, what is the first thing that we need to do with them? Oh, we have got it all summed up in the hymn, haven't we? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Except that that's usually the last thing we do. But we need this biblical godly logic in our thinking. If the Lord is the one in whom we trust, then we need to recognize the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. And our only confidence needs to be in the Lord. Now the people whose trust is in the Lord will never, never, never be confounded. And I don't know anybody who has ever found that untrue. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you this evening for the history of your dealings with your people and for the way you have written large in history the truths that we need to live by. We pray that you would grant that they may be written upon our hearts this evening and that we may learn to be a people whose sole confidence is in the Lord. To this end, may your grace and mercy and peace be with us this night and always. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.